2: Welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, A Conversation of Hope for Tuesday, December 9th. I'm Terry Arango with my guest, Dr. Aristo Vojdani, and this is part two of this interview. Dr. Brojdani is the Founder, CEO, and Director of Research and Development at Immunosciences Lab Incorporated, where he explores the development of novel techniques for the diagnosis of immune disorders, as well as the role of infectious agents, xenobiotics, and dietary proteins in neuroimmune disorders. Among Dr. Vojdhani's 100-plus publications in scientific journals, we find infections, toxic chemicals, and dietary peptides binding to lymphocyte receptors and tissue enzymes are major instigators of autoimmunity and autism in the International Journal of Immunopathology and Pharmacology, antibodies against central nervous system antigens in autism, possible cross-reaction with dietary proteins and infectious agent antigens in neuropsychiatric disorders, and Low Natural Killer Cell Cytotoxic Activity in Autism, The Role of Glutathione, IL-2, and IL-15 in the Journal of Neuroimmunology. Dr. Virgidani, thank you for coming back.
3: Thank you for having me, Carrie.
2: Well, last week, December 2nd, we talked about components of the immune system, autoimmunity, natural killer cell activity, and glutathione, among other things. This week, we're going to focus on dietary factors and autoimmunity and what clinicians can do to help children. But first, Dr. Virginani, we have a listener question. What is the correlation of low CD57 count and autism in children? Is it a high percentage of the ASD population? How does this affect natural killer cell activity? Is there a correlation between CD57 count and Lyme disease? What is the correlation between Lyme disease and autism in children? And if there is a high correlation, how do children with autism acquire this?
3: Um, That's a very long question. Let's break it down. Okay. Uh, The CD57, and by the way, the CD stands for cluster differentiation. On the membrane of the cell, there are all kinds of molecules based on that classified different type of cells. And so CD57 has cluster differentiation number 57, which is unique to a sub- population of natural killer cells. There is only one study in the scientific literature where it was found that CD57 was low in patients with Lyme disease. However, in many other laboratories, including in our laboratory, we tried to replicate that. We could not. Mm. So in my opinion, I don't see any correlation between low CD57, and Lyme disease.
2: Okay. Well, uh, go ahead.
3: Now, in relation to Lyme disease and autism, I'm sure you remember at the recent uh, Defeat Autism Now, that was the topic of my lecture. Yes. Yeah. And I made comparison uh, or used methodologies um, for or the most advanced methodology for detecting Lyme disease and antibody against different components of Borrelia burgdorferi, and uh, uh, applied that to 100 blood samples from children with autism. We found about 17 of those had high levels of antibodies against Borrelia or Borrelia antigen, Borrelial antigen. So um, uh, whether that's really a, a, a number is significant or not, um, I'm sure if I will take also 70, 100 children who are really very sick and run similar assay, and those specimens will find almost 17 of those have that type of antibodies we found in children with autism. So there is some components of Lyme disease in children with autism, but we concluded that we cannot claim that. Lyme disease is responsible for autism.
2: All right. Well, thank you for that uh, comprehensive answer. Would you like to review any of the terminology that you were speaking about in last week's uh, show? Uh,
3: Yes, definitely. I would like to start one more time talking about the immune system, which is a collection of molecules, cells, and tissues working together to to protect the body against foreign material. And the molecules are antibodies, chemokines, and cytokines. The cells mainly are phagocytes or macrophages, T-cells, which are divided to... T-helper cells, T-suppressor cells, and T-helper cells are subdivided to uh, uh, T-helper 1, T-helper 2, T-helper 3, or regulatory T-cells, and very recently found also TH17, which is responsible for many autoimmune diseases. Mm. And then we have the natural killer cells, which are protecting us against infection and cancer cells. And finally, the B cells are the ones who are manufacturing or producing the antibodies. All right. And uh, one uh, a clarification I would like to make is about the chemokines versus cytokines. Um, I had the telephone call. Uh, someone wanted to make some clarification about this. Chemokines are released by the first line of defense, the phagocytes. When the bacteria get in our system, um, the phagocytes taking up, the bacteria or a virus, and then they release the chemokines in order to call for help, to call that the other cells to come to the site of infection and uh, to, to make them uh, able to better handle that foreign material. So the ke- chemokines are released by the phagocytes and the cells and recruit cells to the site of infection. The cytokines, also produced by D cells, by macrophages, by T cells, by helper cells, by suppressor cells, but also can activate itself, can activate the neighboring cells, and also they can activate um, cells which are very far away from the site of the infection. For example, uh, uh, macrophages can produce interleukin-1, Interleukin-1 can go all the way to the brain cells and activate brain cells. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, you know, why a different part of the body can communicate and that's why the, this whole new field of neuroimmunology. We cannot separate between nervous system and immune system because there are molecules of the immune system affecting the nervous system and such as cytokines. I gave an example. And there are molecules of the brain, such as neurotransmitters, which can activate and have effects on cells involved, involved in the immune system.
2: Well, thank you for eloquently bringing it yeah. all together for us.
3: My, my pleasure. And then finally, the, the innate immune response is the natural immune response against infection by phagocytic cells or macrophages and natural killer cells and these cells are immediately available to combat a wide range of pathogens without requiring prior exposure. One of the best examples of, uh, of innate immunity, uh, by the way, is uh, you know, this way the listener will uh, remember very well, is doing tattooing. When you do a tattoo, what do they do? They put a little bit of dye on the skin and then we injure the skin. And that dye goes right under the skin, and the phagocytes will take that that up. This is innate immune response. They don't need to have a memory to be able to do that. Every time we'll put small molecules on the skin, and then we injure, and then the phagocytes will come in contact with that. They will take it up, and they will stay, you know, they they will prevent from spreading of that into the different tissues. And that's why, you know, when we do tattooing, that stays right in the site of where they put the dye and then they injure the skin. And finally, the adaptive immune response is production of specific antibodies against particular pathogens. An adaptive immune response occurs during lifetime of an individual as an adaptation to infection with different pathogens. That can happen one day after birth. Can happen five days, or can happen five years, or ten years. Whenever you know the infectious agent gets into our system, the immune response against that results in antibody production, and that is part of the adaptive immune response.
2: You know, um, you cited the example of tattooing, and it reminds me of what has been reported from many by many parents that when their child received a vaccination, they had a local response, a lump, uh, at the injection site. Does that have anything to do with like what you were talking about?
3: When we, um, one of the best methodologies to assess the cell-mediated immunity, last week we talked about humoral immunity, which is the antibody production, and the cell-mediated immunity like the T cells and B cells and helper cells and suppressor cells. So one of the best ways to assess cell-mediated immunity is to inject small quantity of antigen into the skin, under the skin. And if we get um, some kind of inflammation at the site of the infection or injection in this case, meaning that, in that individual is having a good cellular immune response.
2: Is that any indication, uh, that inflammation that you see at the injection site, is that any indication of what could be going on in the rest of the body?
3: Most probably, yes. But the, the, in this situation, is if we inject an antigen and we don't get inflammatory response, we don't see any redness around the injected material, that person most probably is immunodeficient. So for example, if we do that for a patient with HIV infection, they will not have very fast immune response against that because different components of the uh, the cellular immunity is not working against that antigen which is injected under the skin. Yes, that will be almost uh, similar in every part of the body.
2: I'm a little bit confused about this, Dr. Gajdani. Please pardon. It, to me, a lump developing at the injection site, a big lump, didn't seem like a good thing.
3: Well, it depends on the lo- what is the lump. Um, I'm talking about, you know, inflammation is like a circle around the injected antigen, redness. But if it's the lump, maybe, you know, that's uh, some kind of abnormal immune response.
2: Mm. Well, we were going to focus this week on dietary uh, components uh, that contribute to immune abnormalities in autism, and we often hear about gluten and casein avoid- avoidance in the context that says that caseomorphin and glutamorphin have an opioid-like effect upon children, thus affecting behavior. But when I read your studies, it seemed to me as if you were describing a different mechanism that's not simply a drug-like reaction but is a disease effect in and of itself. But I want to backtrack a bit and first define for listeners what the difference is between a protein and a peptide.
3: Yeah, the protein is a, um, a very long chain, long, long chain molecule made up um, from many amino acids. And the analogy will be if we take a necklace and there are 500 different beads in that necklace. Each one of those beads are amino acids. If we take that necklace and cut that to 50 pieces and each one of those will have like 5, five to 10 different um, uh, beads, each one of those will become a peptide. So it, a peptide is a combination of few amino acids together, could be 10, could be 20, could be 50 amino acids together, but uh, protein is a combination of many peptides together, and sometimes um, could be 1,000, 2,000, or, or 500 or more amino acids together. So, so peptides are few amino acids, a few amino acids together make one peptide, and many peptides together make a protein. All
2: right. Okay. And our next question about dietary proteins and peptides when we come back from break with Dr. Aristo Vojdani. And thank you to our sponsor, Enzymetica. We'll be right back.
0: A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness.
4: Come.
5: Inside all of us lives a warrior. We win battles with our careers, our finances, our children, our pets. It's time that the warrior within wins the battles with our own being. Modern day renaissance man, Ori Hoffmechler dispels eating urban legends and fitness myths in Voice America Network's The Warrior Within. Your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. Ori sets the record straight and will help you become leaner and healthier for a lifetime. The Warrior Within. Broadcasts live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tune in for your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival.
0: your network you're listening to voice america health and
1: wellness welcome back to autism one a conversation of hope with terry aranga if you have a question or comment call us toll free at 866-472-5792 now back to the program here's terry
2: We're back with Dr. Risto Vojdani. And before we went to break, I had started to broach the topic of gluten and casein avoidance, and um, we differentiated between proteins and peptides. And now, Dr. Vojdani, I'd like to ask you how do children develop a sensitivity to dietary proteins and peptides? What causes the gut tissue to begin to react badly to things that other people seem to tolerate just fine? allergy come first causing gut damage or does gut damage cause allergy or does something else affect immunity and start this whole pathological process?
3: Yeah. To answer that question, uh, we need to review the mucosal immune system because, you know, very often we do forget that in the, in, in the gut, we have significant amount of immune response. Uh, uh, in fact, almost 30% of lymphocytes are in the gut. Only 5% are in the blood. So therefore, the mucosal immune system, similar to other components of the immune system, uh, that consists of, again, macrophages, dendritic cells, lymphocytes, and cytokines, which together play a key role in orchestrating specific mucosal immune response. And uh, any uncontrolled mucosal immune response may lead to immunologic disease such as allergy and hypersensitivity. And children with autism, they are not different from uh, uh, other individuals. Maybe they have, you know, more severe abnormalities of mucosal immune system. Um, under normal conditions, when we are exposed to dietary proteins and peptides, the mucosal immune system is regulated in such a way that no immune response will occur against dietary proteins and peptides. So therefore, food proteins will get digested by digestive enzymes to peptides. The peptides will be digested to peptida- bipeptidases, to amino acids, and then amino acids will be absorbed, which is giving us the fuel for different parts of the body. But unfortunately, in some individuals with abnormal mucosal immune system, including children with autism, which the mechanism involves in regulation of the mucosal immune system, is not working properly, the dietary proteins are not digested properly, and so therefore peptides will be accumulated in the uh, gut areas, inducing inflammation, because immune response against those undigested dietary proteins and peptides will result in inflammation, Mm -hmm. release of cytokines, such as tumor necrosis factor alpha or interleukin-1 beta, these pro-inflammatory cytokines now will open the tight junction and the antigens will enter into the blood and different tissues, resulting in antibody production, which we call that um, hypersensitivity or intolerance to food, So this is the mechanism of action I'm describing. So it seems that in children with autism, they maybe do not have good digestive enzymes, cannot digest the proteins properly, or some other factors are contributing to this uh, abnormal mucosal immune system, which is resulting in production of inflammatory cytokines, opening up the tight junctions, and entry of unwanted antigens. Remember that we want only um, amino acids to get into the blood, but in this case, undigested proteins and peptides get into the blood, and immediately the immune system recognizes those as foreign material, Response to those foreign material results in antibody production, and now these antibodies are going to uh, um, probably attack our own tissue, resulting in autoimmunity, which we discussed last week.
2: Right, so that um, summed up very well uh, what I was trying to express, (laughs) in that we we often hear about the gluten and casein avoidance uh, in the context saying caseomorphin and gluteomorphin have an opioid like effect, but what you're describing is really a disease process, uh, autoimmunity. The the peptides get through um, the gut, the impaired gut wall, and end up in the blood and end up traveling to different tissues causing an autoimmune response. Is this correct?
3: That's correct, but simultaneously, some of these uh, uh, peptides act, like opioids, and then can, if the, that individual is having open blood-brain barriers and those short peptides get into the brain area, those peptides will interfere with brain function. Right. Because they act like opioids by binding to opioid receptors.
2: Right. That's, that's true as so well. So
3: both can occur. We can and have autoimmune response, and also we can have uh, competition with beta-endorphins, for example.
2: Yeah. Um, my husband and I have been going around saying all behavior is physiological, uh, you know, in in the context of why is a child acting a certain way?
3: Absolutely, is I it, agree.
2: Yeah, is it behavioral or is it physiological? Well, it's all physiological.
3: Well, the, we cannot separate between the two, Terry.
2: Right, Right, so, uh, for example, when, when school systems, when a child is exhibiting behaviors and, uh, they put a behavior plan into place, uh, or, or say, look for what was happening right before, right before the behavior, uh, what's the behavior, what's the consequence, uh, we really need schools to also respect the fact that the child, uh, to, to, try to consider what's going on physiologically with the child. If they're having horrible gastrointestinal pain or they are reacting to something that's in their diet, that can be what's causing the behavior that you see. It's not just what one would call psychological.
3: That's right. But, Terry, I really do not understand why some people, including many doctors who have so much resistance or showing so much resistance, against uh, gluten-free diet and casein-free diet, while the scientific literature is showing that there is a mechanism behind this inflammatory response in children with autism. And by removing gluten and casein-free diet, which has been shown in many, many individuals, which improves the symptomatology of children with autism, we are not doing any harm. So why so much objection against this but they are so much in the favor of giving medication to these children. But I Really, I don't understand it. So um, there is no harm is done by removing gluten from the diet and, and casein-free diet. I have two children. They don't have autism, but they, ha- they have some kind of thyroid problem. Since they removed gluten and casein from their diet, they improved significantly, and their abnormality of their thyroid completely reverse to the normal range.
2: Very interesting. Well, you asked uh, a very interesting question, and uh, different mainstream medical practitioners may have different reasons for the stance on resisting the gluten-free, casein-free diet. Um, Some people think that if mainstream medicine at large admits that Autism is a, a biomedical condition, a whole body condition, a physiological condition, and not purely psychiatric. It will open up, it will beg the question, you know, what caused this, um, this illness to occur? And some people don't want to look at that.
3: Well, Terry, you know that I believe from my heart, from the bottom of my heart, that autism has some genetic makeup, but environmental factors are the major Triggers in induction of symptomatology in children with autism, and if we will remove those environmental factors, we'll see significant improvement in their clinical condition.
2: Well, thank you for stating that. Thank you very much, and that's you know part of what uh, a lot of mainstream medical practitioners and agencies don't want to look at. Now, digressing for a moment, uh, and. Actually, this is related to our conversation. What you've been talking about is not unlike what I've heard in the past, which said that people who get food poisoning can end up with arthritis. Um, I hope that's accurate. Could you please, you've, you've pretty much summed up the various mechanisms that induce that kind of autoimmune reaction. If you have food, and you mentioned this last week, the different things that could induce autoimmune reactions.
3: Yes, that's a very elegant question. Um, Food poisoning is induced by different infectious agents, including bacteria, mainly Campylobacter jejuni, Salmonella, and sometimes Shigella, and sometimes Staph iris. And so uh, when we have food poisoning, unfortunately, some of the toxins of the bacteria is released
2: all right we'll pick up with this point about okay. uh, food po- poisoning and toxins being released when we come back from break here yes. at voice America
3: no problem
0: opinions options answers voice America health and wellness
1: Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart with Dr. Gloria Horsley right here on Voice America Health & Wellness.
2: of Immunosciences Lab Incorporated. And before break, we were beginning to talk about uh, food poisoning and how that translates to an autoimmune condition.
3: Uh, So um, when we have food poisoning induced by bacteria, many toxins are released by the bacteria. And that's why the symptomatology of food poisoning. And those toxins induce significant inflammatory response in the GI tract. Of course, they will open the tight junctions. The toxins get into the blood and different tissues. Immune response against them uh, results in antibody production. And if there is molecular mimicry or antigenic similarity between that toxin with human tissue resulting in um, cells attack against our own tissue. Um, uh, Because usually the body recognize or differentiate between self and non-self. And uh, under these conditions, due to molecular mimicry between bacterial toxin and human tissue, the body reacts against self, against its own tissue. So that self could be collagen, for example, in the case of arthritis could be heart myosin in the case of rheumatic fever, and could be Guillain-Barre syndrome uh, when the antibodies cross-react between campylobacter jejuni with ganglioside. So there are many, many examples of uh, bacterial antigens or bacterial toxins cross-reaction with human tissue resulting in inflammation first, and then in autoimmunity, in different target tissues. Uh, other examples of bacteria uh, is uh, uh, Yersinia enterocolitis. Yersinia enterocolitis, if, if um, uh, somehow overgrows in the GI tract, secretes, again, another toxin, and that toxin can cross-react with different tissues, including um, uh, different tissues of the joints, and uh, Other tissues as well, resulting in autoimmunity in different components of the body.
2: So if this mechanism is recognized and respected in mainstream medicine, this mechanism between um, food and pathogens and autoimmunity, why isn't it as widely recognized in autism Um, by mainstream medicine? Is it it that question again about them being willing to admit it?
3: uh, I don't know why. Because, uh, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of articles published in scientific journals showing cross-reaction between bacterial toxin in, with human tissue, and children with autism are not excluded from that. Uh, if a child with autism gets, in uh, you know, a food poisoning, and, you know, that individual can end with uh, autoimmune response, um, or, immune, you know, immune response against the toxin can result in, autoimmune reaction first and then uh, after that could be um, autoimmune disease if we don't take care of it uh, or we don't get rid of uh, the infection on time. Mm
2: -hmm. So so when people like Dr. Wakefield and his colleagues find um, pro-inflammatory cytokines and such, that, that really is very significant when they do gut studies and find these things. It really is significant to cognitive function. Possibly.
3: Yes, ab- yes, yeah. definitely. How can and, we... And by the way, Terry, if you look at my article, that in one of the articles, I believe in Clinical Diagnostic Laboratory Immunology, uh, we took patients with full-blown autoimmune disease, such as lupus and arthritis. So we took blood from those two groups, and we took blood from children with autism and we measured antibodies against different tissue enzymes and different tissue antigens, we found almost identical results. Children with autism versus patients with lupus and arthritis had similar levels of antibodies. Mm -hmm. So the conclusion was that children with autism have an autoimmune component in them. Mm -hmm. And autoimmunity is not just antibody production. Uh, uh, In autoimmunity, cytokines are involved, uh, T-cells are involved, helper cells are involved, TH17 are involved. So, autism are not different from patients with autoimmune diseases.
2: Right. So, you can actually measure in the blood and other secretory components of children with autism, um, showing that they're having these problems. Do- documenting that they're having these problems with objective laboratory testing.
3: I have done that in the past 20 years that where we measured first antibodies against different food antigens. For example, gliadin and casein and other food antigens. And only when that specific child had antibodies against gliadin and casein, the clinician based on that recommended gluten-free, and casein-free diet. They did not do it blindly, only based on finding in the laboratory settings. And if they had antibodies against different viruses, based on that, treated children with autism for possible viral involvement as well as um, uh, gave them antiviral medication plus high doses of vitamin A, which is very effective in the GI tract against viruses and bacteria.
2: So the lab and the clinician can actually work together, in essence, as a virtual team to discern biomarker-directed treatment for the patient.
3: Definitely, I don't really know a single clinician who do not use laboratory setting based on which they design their treatment. And children with autism in particular, which I had the honor working with most of these clinicians, I know for sure they are using many laboratory testing, including immune system evaluation, cytokines, natural killer cells, antibodies against gladin and casein, and other dietary protein and peptides, only based on those abnormalities, if they design their treatment modalities.
2: That's very good, and
3: that's why they have such a good result,
2: yes, yes, their children are significantly improving and recovering, and this is uh based on a uh, a on sound scientific um objective information exactly, yes, so I want to backtrack a little bit um, back to the the sensitivities. Are all of the sensitivities immediately apparent? What's the difference between immediate and delayed hypersensitivity? Yeah, there
3: is a significant confusion in the medical community in relation to food allergy and food sensitivity or food intolerance. And let's make that clear that food allergy, when they talk about it, they talk about immediate Type hypersensitivity, which is IgE mediated. And so if an individual is uh, eating strawberry, few seconds or not more than minutes, that person will end with anaphylactic reaction because IgE binds to the mast cells and mast cells release histamine and other mediators, which results in Anaphylactic reaction. So we eat something, immediate reaction in the form of IgE. If we don't take care of that, it's extremely dangerous. And so, therefore, it's you know the reaction by itself can show that the person is having immediate hypersensitivity. So if I have uh, allergy to or immediate immediate allergy or immediate hypersensitivity to certain foods, I know about it and therefore I do avoid it. But the problem is when we are talking about delayed food sensitivity or food intolerance and uh, which is um, we can eat something right now few hours later or even a few days later we'll have a uh, delayed immune response against that food antigen or peptide and and if we don't take care of that will result in autoimmunity
2: mm-hmm. and are there? hidden ingredients in foods and cosmetics that people need to be careful of. Um, in other words, I, I talked to a mom who said that her child was able to eat um, like the uh, whole portion of the wheat. I don't know if I'm expressing this right, but he, um, there's other things where when wheat is processed, he couldn't eat that.
3: Excellent question. In fact, in, I have several slides from my presentations to the clinicians, one of those slides is taken from Journal Allergy and Clinical Immunology, published in 2003. And I'm going to read the title, which is in front of me by chance. Anaphylaxis to Wheat Isolate. Wheat Isolate, I'll explain that. And then Immunochemical Study of a Case Proved by Means of Double-Blind placebo control Food Challenge. What they did, they did skin testing. This is for immediate hypersensitivity with, with wheat. And no skin test positive was found in several individuals. In this case, just one individual. But when they isolated wheat antigen from sausage and injected that pure wheat antigen extracted from sausage, that individual had immediate hypersensitivity to the wheat isolated from the sausage. That shows that during modification of the food antigen, change in antigenic structure may occur, so one may not be allergic to the original food antigen, but when it's modified in cosmetics, in different foods, for in, this is a classical example, in sausage, in uh, uh, soy sauce, then that individual will have significant allergic reaction to the modified food antigen. And could be also reversed. Um, uh, the recent uh, lecture I gave at the, uh, at the American Academy of Environmental Medicine uh, I brought many, many examples from scientific literature that many individuals who did not have any reaction to raw peanuts, but when peanut was roasted, they had significant immune reaction against roasted peanuts. So we are changing the antigenic structures and we, during cooking, during baking, and so we have to be very careful. One could not... Have any immune reaction against raw food, but will have immune reaction or severe immune reaction against modified food. And in some cases, could be reversed no reaction against modified food, but yes, immune reaction against raw food.
2: All right. How fascinating. And we'll be right back. Thanks to our sponsor, Enzymetica.
4: Come. up a will
5: get you out to your head. JackLelane.com presents Jack Lelane Live on the Voice America Health and Wellness Radio Network. Each week, Jack is joined by Elaine Lelane and his nephew, bodybuilder, kinesiologist, and personal trainer, Chris Lelane, to answer your questions and help you overcome your fitness roadblocks. That's three times the diet and fitness know-how, three times the entertainment. Tune in every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific to Jack Lelane Live on the Voice America Health and Wellness Radio Network.
0: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. Dr.
2: Gochdani, before the break, you were talking about how uh, a person could tolerate a raw food but not tolerate the processed uh, that food when it was processed.
3: Yeah, I gave example of uh, raw peanuts uh-huh. versus um, roasted peanuts mm-hmm. and uh, soybeans, cooked and uncooked. Um, so uh, during the processing, it seems that we are introducing new antigens or neo antigens or new allergens into the foods, and therefore one. Uh, originally was not allergic to soy, or corn, or wheat, or milk, but by changing during the cooking and baking, all of that, we can make significant changes in the antigenic structure and something which was not allergenic, now it, it is becoming allergenic. And so therefore, the more the food is in its nature form, the, le- the least that Food antigen is allergenic
2: that makes sense did you find the same things with milk and eggs as you found in uh, with uh, gluten and casein
3: uh,
2: yeah well i'm sorry gluten
3: yeah with gluten I already gave example with yeah. milk with milk in fact, you know they I think there are so many um, factors in the milk growth factors and uh, uh, you know the Some of uh, other factors can influence the antigenic structure of the milk antigen. No, specifically, I did not do research uh, myself, but the reviewing of all the literature, it shows that during modifications, if we eat food which is modified, we induce advanced glycation end products into our system, which are pathogenic molecules inducing all kinds of inflammatory responses, uh, which can result in cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and even uh, prostate abnormality.
2: Wow. I think I'm going to be fasting after this interview. And by the way, that's not medical advice to the audience. Um, You studied immune response to gliadin and cerebellar peptides, confirming a cross-reaction between gliadin and cerebellar Purkinje cells. What does this mean, and how does that translate to seeing pathology in the brain?
3: Um, I'm sure that you know about a terminology called gluten ataxia. Mm -hmm. And there are many scientists who publish articles about gluten-induced ataxia, which is neurologic disorder. And so uh, an, an article published in one of the scientific journals when they took antibodies against gliadin, and they did section of brain cells. They showed clearly that anti-gliadin antibody reacted with different sections of the brain, including Purkinje cells of the cerebellum. But that was just the sectioning of the brain. And so when I read that article, I decided to take pure gliadin peptide and pure cere- cerebellar peptide and make antibody against them in rabbits, and then react them against each other, and there was almost 80% cross-reactivity between gliadin peptide and cerebellar, or between cerebellar and gliadin peptide. So what is the pathological implication of that? Is if we make antibodies against gliadin peptide, if those antibodies cross the blood-brain barriers those antibodies can bind to Purkinje cell in cerebellum and cause neurologic abnormalities. So, therefore, we can call these antibodies pathogenic.
2: So, everything that you've been talking about, what do you do to make all of this stop from happening more, and how do you reverse tissue damage?
3: Okay. I'll, uh, you know, really use um, some of the findings from elegant study in the journal called uh, PLOS Medicine in uh, 2006, where they took antibodies from uh, individual with gluten sensitivity and mixed those with cells in culture. Those cells produced significant amount of pro-inflammatory cytokines, such as IL-1 beta and TNF-alpha. When they removed the gluten from the diet of the same individual. Six months later, they took blood from that individual who was on gluten-free diet and added to the same system no pro-inflammatory cytokines such as IL-1-beta and TNF-alpha was produced. So the conclusion is we have clinical evidence and experiment that gluten-free diet and casein-free diet And other dietary proteins, if an individual is reacting to, if we put them on, you know, on uh, elimination diet, it's going to work by removing some of the abnormal immune response from our system and therefore significant improvement in clinical conditions will be followed by eliminating these uh, uh, peptides and antigens. Uh, which we cannot tolerate in our system from our diet.
2: And what would be the role of supplemental enzymes in mitigating problematic effects of proteins and peptides? Excellent,
3: because remember, the, the, ori- the, the origin of the problem was that the body did not have enough enzymes to digest the proteins to the peptides and the peptides to amino acids. And therefore, accumulation of those antigens to the gut, causing gut inflammation and from gut inflammation to brain inflammation. So by giving digestive enzymes, we are helping to digest those proteins and peptides which are not digested under normal conditions in children with autism.
2: Excellent. So that
3: way, you are getting rid of inflammatory molecules.
2: Excellent, very good. To be
3: digested to amino acids and therefore they will be absorbed. Uh, you know, like a healthy individual.
2: I'm glad we came around full circle to that. Um, is there any place for supplemental amino acids in the diet? Is that helpful? Yeah.
3: If there is laboratory testing and shows that individual, for example, is lacking specific amino acids, I do support that. But we always we have to ask the question, why there are lack of amino acids? The lack of amino acids, again, could result from lack of digestion of proteins to peptides to amino acids. So in my opinion, by giving support to the GI tract, by giving enzymes and digest dietary proteins and peptides, then that individual is going to have normal levels of amino acids. So always we have to ask why.
2: Excellent, excellent. Well, Dr. Virgdhani, thank you for giving our listeners this practical information in such detail.
3: Thank you so much.
2: Dr. Virdani will be speaking at the Autism One Conference in Chicago on Friday, May 22, 2009. Please visit www.autismone.org. Uh, actually, later this week, the site should be updated on Friday, December 12th. And my guest next week, Dr. Uh, I'm sorry, did I say December? Uh, At the end of this week. Uh, Yeah, December 12th. My guest next week, Tuesday, December 16th, will be Dr. Andrew Wakefield. We'd also like to let you know that Grammy-winning Dan Zanes and Friends will play for autism on March 27th, 2009, with net proceeds providing financial support for children with autism and their families in Northeast Ohio through the National Autism Association. This will take place on March 27th, 2009 at Independence Middle School in Independence, Ohio. For more information, please visit www.autismnortheastohio.org. Thank you to this program sponsor Enzymedica. For questions about this program, please email me at tiaranga at autism1.org. And we want to thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. We will uh, see you next week, Tuesday, May uh, December 16th, uh, with Dr. Andrew Wakefield. Thanks for tuning in.